Hi, listeners. Today's podcast episode comes at a sad time for me. Today's guest is Heather Stringer, a mental health therapist who, on the side, creates grief and loss rituals to give people an opportunity to really engage the body to mark huge transitions in their lives. She was recommended to me by Jenny McGrath, who was on here just a few episodes ago. Heather and I went back and forth since January, trying to find an interview date. Finally, we met last Monday. We talked for a while before the recording, and I told her how excited I was to talk to her, because I tend to avoid thinking about death, and I usually choose to avoid educating myself about grief work. I told her that I was ready to open up to this idea. We had an amazing discussion full of stories and inspiration about how she helped other people through loss. We finished our interview a little after 9 p.m., and about two hours later, my mom let me know that her mom, my grandmother, had passed. She was my last grandparent on earth. It didn't take long for me to realize the irony in the timing of it all. I felt sad, of course. I feel sad but I also feel grateful for the opportunity to talk to Heather at this time. In this episode, you'll hear many other stories about how people were able to cope and process their own losses through amazing full-body rituals, and I hope it inspires you to seek this out for yourself or for someone you know, wherever it's needed. This is Mind Your Body, a dance movement therapy perspective on the integration of our emotional, cognitive, physical, and spiritual aspects of our being into one more aware and whole existence. So my name is Heather Stringer, and I am a mental health therapist. Um, But previously, I studied uh, painting in my undergrad uh, and focused on performance art. Um, And then I got my grad degree in psychology, uh, and been doing mental health therapy. Uh, and then also I've been creating rituals for people. So this has been this, uh, wonderful intersection of art and therapy for me, where I get to come alongside someone's life and hear about it, understand it, and then curate, um, an evening marking an aspect of their life. So, um, but those, those three things go, very integral to what I do on a daily, weekly, monthly basis. And for those people who don't know what performance art is, I'm not talking about performing arts. I'm talking about the non-theatrical act of, excuse me, using your body as the canvas um, to explore an idea. It's about being authentic. Uh, It's about uh, listening to your body as you're creating the art piece. Um, And it has a pretty sweet, intimate relationship with the audience. So I just have found it to be such a, beautiful form that interacts with the audience rather than the audience just kind of checking out and looking or, or looking at a piece um, and not having to deal with the fact that the way they look affects the piece. So there's something about the subject to subject that um, I find really fascinating. Yeah, that's beautiful. <laughs> so you decided to bring that into your work as a mental health therapist? So I, I keep that, I keep them separated actually. Um, there, I think for me starting off as an artist, I've needed to keep it separate from some of my professional life, I think, or within therapy. I, I, I love art therapy and, um, 
like that whole field is is so stunning and and so useful and needed. For me, it just it was kind of conflating the two a little bit too much. So I've I I couldn't keep it as pure as I think I've known it to be. Um, so I've, I've separated those, but I think in the ritual making is where they've they've intersected more naturally for me. Because um, I'm not necessarily doing therapy, but I'm also but I also need a therapeutic ear in order to to hear what people are needing um, when they come in and ask, like, you know, I'm going through this transition or I've had trauma and I need to kind of mark um, a past pregnancy or uh, I'm learning this about myself and I've always identified as more masculine and now I'm finding out that I have a lot of femininity or... Um, and so it's been a way for me to listen therapeutically but then also have this more performative piece during the ritual, um, that is inviting the person to really inhabit their body as they remember. And as they, um, transition from the past to the present to the future. So yeah. Yeah. I'm intrigued. (laughs) Uh, I said, I'm intrigued. Could you take us through a session? Like, what does it look like? And what is it? How does it kind of progress? I'm sure there's not just, you know, one session, but just an example. Yeah, within the ritual making. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Let's see. Uh, so there was a woman who, uh, she, her first pregnancy, um, well, her, her labor and delivery, it just, it went awry. Uh, and she needed um, just kind of all the ways that she planned for her, her um, labor got nixed um, because of preeclampsia. So high blood pressure. So she had to go to the hospital and, and it was just kind of messing with her. And the hospital setting was really cold and um, not very warm and um, caring. Her midwife wasn't able to attend. And so her birth was really long. And so she had a lot of uh, trauma that came from that. So her second pregnancy, she hadn't really looked at it. She had kind of just, I think she would say, felt pretty disconnected from the pregnancy and probably mostly because of what was to come. And so there was a lot of anxiety um, and there was a lot of uh, fear around giving birth again. And so in our third trimester, we met and and mostly I, I just listened to hear, like, where are you and where have you been? Um, and what has it looked like carrying that trauma um, in this second pregnancy and um, hearing what she needed. And for her, I think each person, there's usually a word that surfaces that kind of guides uh, the ritual. And so the word for her was through, um, she needed to kind of go through, uh, the fear and the anxiety of, um, the first birth. And so usually I meet two or three times, uh, with the person. And then I begin to sit and contemplate and, uh, wonder like what, what, what is needed? What are the acts needed in order to really engage the body? Cause I think, you know, in our culture, there's not a lot of cohesion around how do we do things when we, when we either, you know, whether it's joy, whether it's sorrow, there's not a lot of kind of ceremonies or, you know, some sort of hair, you know, when, when girls have their menstrual uh, cycle for the first time, it's like, you know, every woman that I've ever talked to has such a different story. Right. And, and there's not, and a lot of it is so charged and, not necessarily this beautiful, empowering thing. And we're left, I think, to be vulnerable to how the rest of the world is seeing us. 
you know, so boys are like grossed out by it. So it's like, oh, this thing is terrible. Oh, it causes pain. Oh, like I hate it more and more. It's like mm-hmm. such a nuisance. And instead it's like, this is this kind of Rite of passage. Of <laughs> <laughs> like our bodies trying, you know, wanting to create life. And we are the only, if without, without the uterus, there would be no life, <laughs> you know? So, um, so there's something just really important about creating um, places. And, and so for this woman, the, the, the piece around trauma, um, and birth, like there's, I mean, it, there's not, there's virtually not much out there around, um, how do you, how do you grieve, um, a, a traumatic birth story? Like, how do you, what do you do? It's fairly quiet, um, around birth. And there's usually just the focus of, but there's life. Like I had the kid, like it's good, mm-hmm. you know, and that's so true. And yet you also carry so much pain and fear and anxiety about what that was like to feel kind of, if not completely out of control of your body and to be so assaulted by something that is trying to bring in such beauty and goodness. So it's like a strange juxtaposition. Um, so for her, we, I try and, and listen to like their, if they have any particular heritage um, and to find different practices that are within certain people's heritages to employ. And so, yeah. Would you like me to talk like more specifically about the ritual or. Yeah. I, I think we got a pretty good background and now I'm interested in, yeah. What, what does that ritual look like? How did you decide to go about the ritual in this way and what came out of it? Yeah, no, I'm definitely, I'm like, okay, what happened next? (laughs) (laughs) So I think the point that I was trying to make earlier about why the body is so important in this is that because, yeah, because we're not marking kind of holistically what's happening to us, you know, we have like, we intellectualize it or we avoid it. Uh, We just find ways to not actually embody it. And so that's one really important piece to the ritual making is, is how do I get the body really engaged so that the person can be more in their, I would call autobiographical brain. So not in their prefrontal cortex where they're afraid of making mistakes and they're trying to function more precisely. Um, but to get that suppressed in order for, for them to really, um, access, I think the parts of their brain that, are really helpful in these moments of trying to remember and, and move through something. So she, she, um, has an Irish heritage and they have this, let's see, it's, it's untying knots and every, after every knot that you untie, you speak a fear around the pregnancy. And so we had, I mean, she had her husband there and their handful of good friends um, at the ritual. And that's another piece that I think is really important is to have witnesses because it ups ante and you have people that can remind you after it's done, like this, this happened and we know we can hold you here. Um, we know what that was like. We know what happened and we can kind of testify to it. So she had a series of, of her and her husband undoing the knots and speaking the different fears. And, you know, a lot of, a lot came up through that, um, kind of unexpected fears that were there or presences of certain people that she loved, but that actually brought up a lot of tension when picturing her, them at her birth. And so it was interesting because I think she was kind of maybe putting blinders on to certain aspects of, of what her labor and delivery for her second child was going to look like. Are you talking about the people at the hospital? 
that that was coming up? The people who you said were treating her kind of cold? Well, that and then, her, I guess she's planning for her second birth, too. Okay. Um, some of the things that she had in place, she recognized that she needed to change it. Um, oh, okay. And then we had, um, I do this, it's a little bit of a, like a touch piece where I have half of the people that are there on one side and the other half on the other side. And we do a certain squeeze, like one, two, one, two, and half the people are on one and the other half are on two. So they're getting alternating squeezes on their left and right side. And then as they undergo that, they speak kind of, I had her speak to some of those fears um, and then speak to more of what she wanted to um, bring to her birth that was good. And I found that it somehow opens up the body in a way where they can really either get rid of some of the the anxiety and then also really solidify what they're wanting and what they're imagining for themselves. And so that was another piece that I use quite frequently. Um, And then water was really important. So we found a, we found a, a pool that was indoors and it was dark and we had candles and we sang over them, um, as they were in the pool and we descended down where they, the, the woman and, and her partner were in the pool. Um, I had her friends or their friends, uh, get into the water singing this really beautiful song. And so it was just like this kind of magical evening where they were held well and, um, they got to be kind of fully like in their bodies, whether it had to do with fear and anxiety, um, as well as like celebrating, connecting to this, this second child of hers. So that's one example. There's more pieces to it that I'm not quite recalling right now, but that gives you a few different things that, yeah, yeah, that I try. That's fascinating. I had a picture in my mind and I don't want to, you know, project my imagination on this too much. Um, do you have music and, you know, different kinds of natural herbs and involved and yeah. Yeah. I mean, so another, another woman that I did a a ritual for, uh, we did more of a kind of a feminist Seder meal. So her marking her journey with different herbs and tastes and oils and um, foods that just marked this, each, each leg of her journey thus far. And so, um, yeah, it, it is a very, it's very sense oriented experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that's, yeah, that's really in- integral to one to make symbols. So I think symbols are really important, uh, as you're looking at your life. Um, and then to, to associate those symbols with your senses, I think helps remind you so I think one of the women said that whenever she smells cedar oil she's she is immediately back like brought back to that evening um or I know pomegranate for someone else and yeah so it's this really it's it's this really sweet way of letting people have these very clear and acute experiences where if they're out in the out and about in their life and they run into it they're immediately reminded of this is what I did this is what I'm claiming for my life this is the direction that I'm moving in so yeah so how long it how long do you typically spend with somebody in a ritual does it vary or is do you have a certain time it varies I mean I think it's usually about two to three hours oh wow 
And you, you always involve family members or close loved ones yeah. and... Yeah, I, I mean, I have the people that they feel safe with and they would want to accompany them uh, on that, like, in this journey, like, what, whatever it is that they're undergoing. And, but yeah, usually, I mean, sometimes there's family, uh, but definitely close friends. Uh, and, and there's usually a time for people to speak to these people as well so that they can hear other voices supporting the person, you know. Do you ever run into a situation where you invite other people and they're not supportive and it kind of becomes conflicted and doesn't go it the way you planned? How do you contain the process? <laughs> so far, so far, I have not had any, I've, I haven't had any um, contrarians, although, you know, you definitely feel the, the, the various personalities in the room. But I find, I mean, I think the frame is set usually in the beginning uh, where I tell people, um, you know, listen, listen to where you feel yourself drawn to, listen to yourself as you pull away and check in with yourself. Like, why am I not wanting to look here? Or why do I not want to participate here? And it's not to say you need to participate, but just more of like, just be mindful of yourself and at, at at this place. But I think, I think what I find, which feels similar to, um, let's say weddings where people are just typically they'll put on a happy, they'll, 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 they'll like show their best, mm -hmm. you know, and show their support. Um, and so I think with, with, uh, rituals, I, I find that people are pretty, if they're selected, it's, it's for reasons that means that this, this ritually really loves these people. And so, in turn, I think these people show up well and supportive for the most part. So, yeah, I not yet, but I definitely have to that line where I'm like, okay, we've got some big personalities here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, but nothing that's taken us off track. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I think people, I think people have a harder time in that setting, especially because it's so unknown. Um, I think they have a harder time. Like they don't want to make a mistake. And that's something I also speak to. It's like, I want people to participate. And so if you feel like there's something that you want to add, by all means, improvise. Because I think that's where, when we improvise, there's a lot of creativity that comes from that and a lot of goodness. So more often I have to kind of nudge people to, to come closer. Yeah. How are you containing the process? Like I hear that you're setting some guidelines in the beginning and some expectations or what to expect from the session, um, from the ritual making. And then you're, you said you'd leave some room for improvisation. Are you leading them through that? Like, does it look like a dance sometimes? Yeah, there's, I mean, it, it varies. Like sometimes it's going into warrior pose in yoga. Uh, so there was a woman who, this for her birthday, but she was also kind of remembering and walking through some sexual assault uh, trauma. And so one of the things that we did was we went into the forest at one point and I like invited them to invited her, but all of our friends too, uh, to just scream, um, and, and, in unison. And, I said up front, you know, at first you're going to be like, what the hell am I doing? Like, you're going to be thinking about, I shouldn't be sounding like this. This is, you know, 
not normative. Uh, and I said, we're going to just keep doing it until you get out of your thinking brain. Um, and until you're really feeling it from head to toe. Uh, and so I let her lead that. So she, I, I told her like, when you're, when you think you've gotten it out and you think that you've accessed the place that is kind of totally you, you just let me know. So we did it a few times. I had a, I had to kind of coax like, okay, now do it again, but from a deeper place, like try and reach deep into your, into your stomach or into your gut. Um, wow. and it was, it's so interesting to see the progression of kind of these more forced screams to these really guttural, wild screams, primal <laughs> screams. And, and after that we got into warrior pose, um, and then went into peaceful wear. And that, that transition from warrior to peaceful wear was, it was like, I think we all felt it so profoundly in our bodies where it was like, okay, we can, you can be, we can be at rest now. Uh, and to have that, to see rest come over a woman's body who's known, um, has known assault, uh, is, you know, it's by far like one of the greatest gifts, um, in, especially in doing this work. It's a, it's really, I, I benefit from it. And so, you know, I, I get, I get to witness too, and that I'm grateful for because I, I see a lot of really brave people make these movements and connect with their bodies and they don't want to connect with their bodies and find eventually rest and peace. Um, and that, yeah, that is just, it's a stunning, it's a stunning sight. Yeah. You said the word brave and I was just thinking how scary it, it is for someone who's gone through assault and trauma to just scream in this open space, a forest. Why did you decide to go to the forest? Uh, I mean, I think one is we were in a neighborhood, so I didn't want to like, I want to traumatize other people um, in the neighborhood. So it seemed like, okay, we should probably get into the woods a little bit uh, so that we don't scare people. uh, And so there's that. And then I think too, it makes more sense to be in the woods and being in a natural environment when you're making that, those kind of sounds than in a man-made home with plaster and carpet. And, you know, there's something about being in the, the wet forest where it's shadowy and, um, yeah, there's, there's something I think that just corresponds with the sounds that we're making really well. Uh, and I was trying to be mindful of the neighbors. So, <laughs> and you were screaming along with her as well as the other people who were there. I was, yeah. yeah. I usually participate. Yeah. I would, I would imagine that makes them feel a lot safer doing it. Yeah. It's, yeah. Yeah. To yeah, hear yeah. that communal, that communal scream, that communal voice seems really mm-hmm. powerful. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I picture when I think about a ritual. Mm-hmm. Is the the screaming? In well, unison? not necessarily even screaming, but just like projecting your voice in unison. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think that yeah, there's something about finding your voice that's not based on forming words that is just so important. And you know, again, we don't really have spaces for that. I mean, I know that there's, there's people that will, will work with you and your voice and kind of trying to find your true voice and whatnot. But yeah, I just, it's like, 
The way that I know, I mean, most of the time when I'm using my voice, it's to try and form words. And so there's a, there's a, a something gets lost in that because you're thinking and you're um, having to execute versus really being maybe creative or really accessing something that is deeper than forming a sentence. And I personally love that because mm-hmm. sometimes forming sentences and words, I just I get you know, sometimes bogged down by it. So there is something really important about being able to yeah, access your voice without having to think too much about it. Yeah. It's hard to find flow. I think when you're trying to form sentences and it's something, you know, talking about something that's really challenging, there's a lot of stuff that can get in the way, your emotions, your fears, you know, um, as opposed to, you know, I'm just thinking my own experience dancing, you know, I have less, less of a filter in my dance. I can just go with the flow and not have to pick and choose what comes up, but just follow that. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. So it just seems so important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I appreciate what you said before about celebrating these life events that either get overlooked really easily or are frowned upon or judged. Mm-hmm. And I know you do a lot of work with grief and loss and, I think that also is, I think it's respected when people lose somebody, but after a certain time, it's like, all right, move on. It's, it's time to get over it and move on. And it's, it's minimized. Yeah. And, and often that's because the people that are asking the, the one that's mourning to move on is it's because they haven't allowed themselves right to, to mourn at such a deep level yeah, it's it's a it's a it's a dark place that oftentimes doesn't have a lot of form, and I think that scares people when there's not um, form to it. You know, it's it's a little bit chaotic, and that reminds me of Mali Dom Some is a uh, he's from the Dagara tribe, and I'm probably mispronouncing all of this. I'm trying my best. Um, but it's a tribe in West Africa and they have a a grief ritual that just makes so much sense in terms of really allowing people to connect, but they have the three elements are the mourners, the musicians and the containers. And so, I mean, they have a very elaborate procession and so many symbols like putting white ash around the deceased house, um, you know, to ward, uh, to ward off evil spirits, um, and then they have like a, a shrine with um, the deceased and they have times for um, the canters and they have different people that are, you know, playing percussion and their, their intention is to be really attuned to the, the, the mourning and the singers as well. And those that are grieving, those that are closest, they have different actions where they get to act out the deceased's life and people take turns like embodying that person um, so it really connects them so deeply to who we have lost and what does that mean and what is our life, what does their life look like? Um, but then they also have these people that are meant to help contain. So, and part of that means they're, they're having to read, okay, are they grieving in a way that's killing themselves and, or is it grief that is actually, I don't want to say appropriate because that, that, that feels too sterile of a word, but um, warranted maybe. Um, so, and I don't know how they tell that line of the grief that's taking them to 
a much darker place. But I would imagine all of us who don't have brief rituals or don't have certain, you know, other than like a very formal funeral, I don't think we have the experience of one, I think being held by a community really intimately and really well. And then two, to have people who can contain, um, who can say, okay, the grief that's happening to you right now is, is actually stealing your own life. So can we, can we move back a little bit? Can we actually look at what, what's happening? What are your thoughts? Where, where are you going with this? Um, and not to stop the grieving, but to really just and kind of inquire about what's happening for that person. So I think, I think there's, there's such a need for us, whether it's within families or within communities, but to really find ways of honoring, yeah, the loss that all of us are inevitably going through at one point or another. Um, and I can go into another story that really shaped that for me if you, if you want, but yeah. Okay. And this is a story that it's definitely a kind of an icon in our community, but years ago, I think it was about six years ago, um, two women in our communities was pretty young at the time. So we didn't have very many kids and two of the women were pregnant and one was halfway through her pregnancy and the other one was, um, full term, uh, actually two weeks late. Uh, and so one night we find out that the woman that was, um, halfway through her pregnancy lost the baby, which was really devastating. And then, um, the next day, um, the other woman, uh, found out that, you know, within the, the last week, her full term baby had died as well. So it was this very, uh, freakish moment where our children were dying it felt like it, it kind of had that feel since we didn't have very many kids and um but what proceeded was this house that was our some of our friends they opened it up and they let all of us like lament and cry and grieve for days and days and i've never cried as hard um and part of that was yeah, definitely the loss of this baby that we were, and these babies that were like, all of us were really, really excited about. But I think there was something about the connection of tears between the people that just made it, um, you can really feel the depth of what had happened. Um, and that, I mean, I think that that was this point where I realized, I think maybe when I did my first ritual was through that, where before the funeral, we had some time with close community friends and family and I set out in the middle I guess kind of a shrine of sorts where there was dirt and there was like bulbs uh like plant bulbs and glass and kind of different different elements that people could use and invited them to to if you need to express what's happening for you right now please feel free to to mark it some way and so some you know some women just rub dirt all over their face and their clothes another person took a a glass jar and went outside and, and, and chucked it and you could hear it shatter. And, and so all these different ways of, of trying to symbolize this is what's going on together um, was, it was just one of the more profound experiences. And to this day, we are all so intimately bound by this story that I was really not expecting um, like how close it's kept me to these people. Um, but it also showed me, and I think all of us, and especially the couples, that when you when you undergo that much grief, um, 
there is that question of, will I be consumed by it? Like, will I be swallowed up by it and not be able to return? I think that's probably in the back of all of our heads. And that was, you, you come out. And I think you come out, one, um, because you have people that love you. Um, even if it's a couple of people, it doesn't have to be whole community people. But I think when you have a couple of people that, was, that will, are there and that are saying, I, I, I remain here um, with you and for you. And then I think too that I think there's there's something there's something that dies and comes back to life um, in that process. And both of these couples now have a handful of kids, and, and you know both of the the lost babies are so part of our lives and are remembered annually. Um, but that I mean that really shaped my understanding of, of grief and loss and how how necessary it is to allow your body and soul to really be attuned to how how sad and broken you are over what's just happened mm-hmm. and to hear it back you know to hear the other you know I actually collected all of the tissues um and I kept them in a box there was something about the symbol of the tissue and just how many tears we cried and like there was, there was just something like really important for me to hold and to remember. And I eventually, I, I have some still, but I gave them um, back to um, both couples. It just, I think, yeah, it symbolized to me that yeah, our tears matter. Wow. Yeah, it, it feels really validating to hear that story that they had all these tears that came together and people were feeling with them. Like, I'm sure there was this energy there that was like hard to describe this visceral feeling like we're all down here together. And then you said, I was actually thinking that I think this is one of the reasons why people are, you know, end up being unaccepting of other people's grief. Cause it's like, well, are you ever going to get out of it? You know, like, come on, get yourself out of it and let's move on. Cause I'm, you know, I'm scared for you too, that, you know, you're never going to move on and, and get out of a place of love. Um, so that's why I liked when you brought up the containers and, you know, containment allows them to, it holds the process and mm-hmm. you can almost see a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Like it's not, we're not going to be down here forever this process is contained. And as long as I know that I can get out, I can go as deep as I, as I need. I'm imagining that's what you do with your rituals. Like you're containing the process so that they can go as deep as they need and you will bring them out. Mm -hmm. And that was my, my next question to you is when you said they will get out, what do you think or what tends to be the event or I don't know, the thing that helps them come out? It's probably different for each person, but... I think that's a, a really great question. And part of it feels mysterious. I also think one part has to do with when I was thinking about the grief or the the mourning that I was doing after we lost the two babies, it was connecting me to all of my other griefs, right? And it was, it was, it was not just that tragic loss. It was all the losses that I've known. And finally, it was in a space that there was containment and that I could go home to my husband and, and talk. There was some other kind of containment there. And I, I don't really know if I could put words to it. Um, but I think there was something about having no formalities where you could 
actually access kind of the, the some of the, the deeper places of grief um, over, you know, the at the time, I don't know, 30 years of living um, and seeing a lot of different loss or experiencing a lot of different loss. I don't want to give it a formula because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't want to, you know, but there is something, there is something about how, how do you honor what you're undergoing? Um, because I think that shapes the way you continue to allow yourself to mourn. And then it also becomes the gauge of, okay, right now I'm at a point where I am not dishonoring my own life with how overcome I am by the grief. Um, so there is something about, about this moment of, okay, I know, cause I remember my, the couple, one of the couples, they got to a point where they're like, okay, we're now, we're now, you know, I don't know if this is their language, but we're now dishonoring our own lives and that we still have life. We still have these bodies. We still have breath. Like how, what do I do with them now? Um, and how do I honor that child of mine by living well? Mm. And so there's something, there's something about, those questions that I think guide some of that. Yeah, I think I'm sure it's different for everybody, but I can see like you kind of have to hit a low or you kind of have to hit rock. I this sounds so cliche, but you have to kind of hit rock bottom mm-hmm. in order to feel that, that feel that ground that you're hitting. And it's kind of like a, Oh, mm-hmm. okay. Mm-hmm. I've allowed myself to get here. Now, how do I walk back up or, you know, climb back up? Mm-hmm. So I, yeah. I don't know. I just came up with that analogy in the moment, but it just makes me wonder, like, if people don't allow themselves to feel their grief fully or mourn fully, how much harder is it to get to that place where they realize it's it's time for me to move forward mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah I think is that what you're kind of talking about yeah no I mean I think the, the language that I that's coming to me now is a more of a disorientation and and there's I think that's part of what grief does it, it it's it's a it's just shattering and it's a disorienting of life as you've known it and as you were planning for um and so there is something about you know, if you're at the rock bottom of the sea, it's, that's, you know, it's terribly disorienting. Um, and I think there comes to a point where there needs to be more of a reorienting of the, okay, this is life now. And how do, how do I want, how do I want to honor it? How do I want to live from it? How, how do I honor the dead through living my life? Part of what I wonder around grief is if we, if there's, if there's a certain point in which we say no more, I would imagine there was, there'd be much more of an inclination towards depression or, or towards, um, kind of living more out of a pretense place. Uh, and cause I think that that's part of what was really striking was, was this kind of surrendering to it that seemed like, okay, this may never end. But I think that that's where the paradox was, um, was that actually if you if you do allow yourself to surrender it and and have people to witness and to participate, there's something buoyant. There's something that kind of allows you to, to, to rise back up. It's yeah, funny. I, 
like the image that I got while you were talking was being underwater. And then when you said people come out of it, I pictured coming from deep in the ocean to to the top of the ocean where you can see out. And then the moving on is like swimming to shore. Yeah. And no, definitely. I know when you said rock bottom, that that I was like, oh, I pictured the sea. But I know that that phrase hints at just a canyon, like a dry canyon. Yeah. <laughs> so it's interesting that water kind of came up mm-hmm. for both of us. There's there's no there's no compass with grief, at least for a time. Um, but again, I think like if I were to go, this isn't necessarily about grief. Well, it could be, um, but even thinking about like kind of back to that, the menstruation example, if you don't mind, I think when we have, when we have certain, yeah, certain rituals that are saying, here's what's happening in your body and to have, you know, a group of women, um, and girls being able to come around and say, we're going to, we're going to symbolize this. We're going to, we're going to say, this is good. Um, we're going to say that this is part of our body's are made to do. And this, this blood is, is, is symbolic of, um, our bodies wanting to, to, to create. And it doesn't mean an actual baby necessarily. It's just, it's just this kind of symbol of we are meant to be creative, intuitive people. And I think when we have kind of this framework, um, or have this, this certain container really, um, then again, we go into the world and more empowered and, and, and it holds accountable to all of the women and what they're doing with their bodies. Right. Cause it's saying like, we all might be at different places with how we feel about menstruation, for instance, and that's okay. But are you actually looking at it and are you engaging on some level? Um, and because we're so individualized, it's like everyone can just look away or can make it into a huge ordeal or, their silence, um, you know, and so I think that it it kind of calls into accountability of okay, as a as a as a group, how are we going to do this? And I think the same with grief too. It's it's like how 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 do we want to contain or put some sort of perimeter? Of, this is how we're going to grieve, mm-hmm. um, and it's not necessarily that's like you know writing up a document. And <laughs> I think there's there's so much room for creativity and improvisation, and but there's also this kind of saying yes to, I'm going to look, I'm going to, I'm going to, um, engage. I'm going to, uh, to note, um, what's happening. Yeah. Thinking of, um, thinking about menstruation, you mentioning that and creating ritual around it. I, it's making me realize, you know, I'm like thinking, well, how do I view it and how has it been in my life? And like, I've only really, talked and thought about it in terms of the symptoms like I've got PMS <laughs> um, you know these are the effects it's having on my body and uh, it's making me moody I'm more emotional and hormonal and all that stuff and it's like dancing around it rather than through it yeah and yeah. and I can yeah I can hear that you're just really honoring the menstruation for what it is yeah yeah no that's that's yeah that feels really insightful that the observation yeah I agree I think there is something about the through instead of like dipping your toe in it and then backing away that feels really important and it, I mean it takes 
takes a lot of courage to do that. And, and it's okay when there's moments where you just, you can't go that close, whether it's grief or something else. Like it's saying, this is what I'm choosing to do versus it becoming really blurry. Um, and incoherent, you know, there's something really important about how do we, how can we speak and not necessarily in articulate ways, but just say like, here I am. I, I know that this is in front of me, whether it's grieving a loss, whether it's the way that your body's changing and I want to engage it. And I think part of with rituals, at least as I do them individually for people, it's, it's kind of whole, it's, it's calling them to really move closer to whatever it is that's happening for them. And that, that feels important because we have a plethora of ways to disengage, <laughs> you know, like there's too many ways that we can disengage and dissociate and think about other things or not think at all. Um, Absolutely. You know? <laughs> so it does, it does call a person to really step forward. And I would say that almost every person that I've done a ritual for the night before, five minutes before they're like, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> what am I doing? Like, are you sure about this? And I say, yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I can totally feel an energy from you even through this screen, like that you've become intertwined with, I don't know, the spirits of people's lives. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just getting a really like a spiritual energy from you. And it's really cool to feel that. Well, that's great. Yeah, definitely. There's definitely a spiritual side to all of it. Mm-hmm. Do you believe in past lives? This is just a question you don't have to answer for the podcast, but I just want to know. I, I, I don't think I do, but I haven't really, I haven't really thought about it a whole lot. I think I, I definitely believe, uh, the, the effects and presences of generations prior, which I think is, you know, if you go into, if you, if you take a turn into more of like the spiritual side of ritual making, there's a part of it, or at least an undercurrent that is speaking to this, the spiritual side of how one generation has affected or is still with the next generation. And that, I think that is, I think about even like epigenetics where there's, we're passing down trauma and certain aspects of our DNA that get activated and Mm -hmm. you know like how I ate and my you know if I ate a lot of carbs like it's just it's kind of it's kind of crazy um but then I think I I would say that that moves into more of the spiritual realm as well well yeah spiritual means something different for everyone like the way that I'm feeling your energy that it's spiritual for me is just an experience that's reminding me of a time when I had a spiritual feeling experience before. Um, Do I believe in past lives? Um, I don't not believe it, but I also, you know, don't fully believe it. I don't know. Sometimes, you know, I wonder and have beliefs that our souls have been around for many, many years and we're just inhabiting a body that it's, it's inhabiting a body that's, you know, mine, but my soul has belonged to, you know, other people. And so I, sometimes I get into that space, but you know, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know. That's interesting. <laughs> of course. I don't you know. know I, I, kind of, I mean, there's a part of me that so, let's see, how do I want to put this? The particularity of my body is so significant to me. <laughs> so to think about having jumped around to other people's bodies, I'm like, Oh gosh. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> 
I, don't, I mean, I think that's part of maybe the way that I've experienced more of my body is that it, I just feel so intertwined. Um, so it's hard for me to imagine being disentangled um, mm-hmm. enough to be to have transferred to others or to prior have transferred to others. So um, it's interesting. I think I would wonder how how yeah those who do believe that how they feel in their bodies um, or what the experience would be like. I'm actually really impressed with how much you're describing your work because of how embodied it is and you're turning it into words. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I'm always like, for me and like my framework and my experience, I fluctuate between the particulars and the universal. Like there's something about both that are so important to me and that I find a lot of meaning in. Cause I think there's something about the particularity of my body in contrast to another person's body that brings me together, but also distinguishes me from them. And I think both are so important because um, particularities hold so much meaning and difference um, from one person to the next. So I think, yeah, it's, it's an it's interesting conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing that I want to ask you is where do you take your practices from? Do you, kind of draw from different rituals around the world because I'm thinking about how a lot of the listeners are movement or body-based healers and they might want to incorporate some of this in their work. Yeah, definitely. The way that I stumbled into the work, I, I did a ritual I didn't know as a ritual and it was so based upon the person. And I think that's, that's first and foremost so important is that it's, it's, um, it's congruent with whomever you're working with. And so for me, I don't want to just appropriate from other cultures. I don't want to just take, you know, from the Dagara, um, tribe, like what they do. I mean, I think I want, I want to be taught and I want to, to learn and to be, um, open to what they do. But at the same time, I, I don't feel any need to appropriate or to take. I think that, as I've tried to think about what does this look like if I were to do rituals for groups or, um, I think a lot of it, as I'm thinking about doing group rituals that are open to the public, I think a lot of it will be based upon the topic and then the way that I will, I approach it. So what comes from that is just mostly creativity. And, and I think of course I'm influenced by what I've seen and what I've learned, but I think it's just so important that it's, it's, you're, you're tuned to the group or the person you're working with. And so if they have a heritage that's based very particularly, um, and rich in like certain practices, then yeah, I would, I love to employ that for, for them. Um, but other than that, I, it's more of like, what does a person need to do to move through this, um, part of their life. So, I mean, it's, just, it can be like using different tactile materials that symbolize really well for the person. And that, that tends to work the best because it's, it's, it's something of them, um, that's coming through. So, I mean, I think if you look at Greek mythology or just mythology in general, like there's so many different soul tasks, um, different goddesses and gods and, and people that they undergo. Like there's, there's a lot of really good material there. Um, 
I mean, Molly Domo, Doma Some is, he has a book about, um, let's see, what is it called? I think it's called just Ritual. Um, so if you Google Ritual and um, Dagara, D-A-G-A-R-A, Tribe, you'll find a lot of his work and his wife's work too, which is beautiful. I can imagine a dance therapy session, like something really, really drawn out and with a specific, really, really specific purpose. And I can see your work overlapping. Yeah. How that, how that might relate. Yeah. Well, thinking about repetition, I think repetition is, I mean, I, I know that it, it, when you do something over and over again, you're able to transcend that so you're not thinking so much about what you're doing and so you're you're led more creatively and I that's a huge component I think into ritual making is that there's elements of of repetition Mm. where yeah you're able to become more in your body and it's a repetition that is really symbolic so it becomes infused with meaning as you're doing it over and over again I would imagine like in dance like if you get if you get struck by a certain motion or movement it's like what if you keep doing it and what else comes out of that so there is something to just I mean simply put paying attention and letting it blossom or kind of burgeon as you're doing it over and over again great yeah this is great great talking to you (laughs) Uh, likewise yeah it's really really easy so thank you for providing such a cozy comfortable setting just (laughs) your face and the map and your voice and yeah it was really nice yeah sure thank you heather and thank you everyone for coming back to listen if you're not subscribed already to the podcast make sure you go to your favorite podcast app and hit subscribe so that you get updated when episodes are published and feel free to take a visit to my site www.mindyourbodydmt.com i'll put that link in the episode notes Bye.